Hello and welcome to episode number 116 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, January 18th, 2011. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Scott Russell Sanders, who is an author and conservationist and has written many books, including Hunting for Hope and The Conservationist Manifesto. Scott Russell Sanders, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm glad to be talking with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about Aldo Leopold. I imagine you are a conservationist and obviously a, an author and someone who I imagine values very much the writings of Aldo Leopold. Can you tell us about the influence and, relation, and your relationship uh, with Aldo Leopold's writings? Well, certainly I know Leopold's writings very well, and he and his writings have been profoundly important to me probably for 20 years. Uh, there, and for a number of reasons. One, the obvious reason that everyone who's ever read a Sand County Almanac or any of his other collections of essays uh, would recognize, namely that he wrote brilliantly about the land, about science, about nature, and about our ethical responsibilities. And I, I can't think of anyone who has combined all of those pursuits, all of those interests as as seamlessly as Aldo Leopold did. But another reason why Leopold has been important to me is because he's a a Midwesterner. Um, When I travel around the country, I live in Indiana, and I grew up in Ohio, and I've lived in Indiana the last four decades, my whole adult life. And when I travel around the country, especially to the coasts, people often think or imagine that there's very little environmental thought going on or environmental action going on in the Midwest, and I always remember that one of our greatest, if not the greatest, uh, environmentalist is a Midwesterner. And even John Muir, whom we associate, of course, with California, which he wrote about so magnificently uh, after he moved to the United States from Wisconsin, he uh, to, from Scotland, rather, he grew up in Wisconsin, although Leopold's uh, adult state, but uh, Leopold, as a boy, came from Iowa, and he first bonded with the natural world here in the heartland. Experiences with nature and with wilderness are woven throughout your essays and writings. How and why is the wilderness experience important? Well, first of all, I should say, while I love wilderness, and every chance I've had to go to the wilderness, it has been profoundly moving to me. I really am more of a writer of the settled landscape, the inhabited landscape. So while I've written, for example, about canoeing in the Boundary Waters or hiking uh, high in the Rocky Mountains or uh, kayaking in Glacier Bay in Alaska, and as I say, while those those tastes of wilderness have been profoundly important to me, I really have spent my life in inhabited landscapes, on farms, in woodlands that are being have been logged and are currently being used, and in city landscapes, parks, uh, yards, and so forth. So I see myself much more as a writer about uh, the near to human nature rather than the remote wilderness. It's all nature, of course, 
uh, we are as much nature, our houses are as much made of nature as as our grizzly bears and and uh, humpback whales. But in it's harder for us to remember, it's harder for us to see in the midst of our human constructs, our buildings, our vehicles, our roads, our yards, and so forth. It's harder for us to see and to remember uh, that all of this is part of nature, is made of nature, is saturated with nature. And I'm much more a writer about the nature that is in our midst all the time. I thought that we could kind of get into the heart of your book, uh, Conservationist Manifesto, by having you read an excerpt from that book. Um, I selected an excerpt prior to this interview. Uh, could you go ahead and read that excerpt? Sure. Uh, this is from a chapter in the book called Building Arcs, and I am writing about the various ways in which people react to our rather dire uh, ecological and cultural challenges. Uh, so here's a, a passage, a long paragraph from that chapter. By comparison, those who strive to live more simply are harder to see. They don't crowd the malls or the fast food shops. Occasionally, they make news by defending trees from bulldozers, but they rarely show up on talk shows, on the covers of magazines, on ballots, or on business pages. Instead, largely invisible except to one another, they go about learning the skills and mastering the tools necessary for meeting basic human needs. They grow food. They build shelters. They make clothes. They draw energy from sun and wind and wood. They get by with fewer possessions and learn to repair the ones they have. They create much of their own entertainment with homemade art, music, and stories. They derive pleasure from good work, human company, and the perennial show that nature puts on. So far as possible, they rear their children away from television and advertising. They buy as little as they can from the global economy, and instead they support local economies based on cooperation, barter, and sharing. They protect and restore woods, prairies, and swamps, making room for wildness. Well, one of the reasons why I asked you to read that excerpt is because the they you describe in that excerpt uh, so beautifully are, I think, uh, many of the people who listen to this program, and I thought they would very much appreciate uh, your acknowledgement of their efforts. I'm, I'm very glad to acknowledge those efforts, and in my own way, my wife and I and our children who are now grown take part in those efforts. And as I indicate in that chapter, Building Arcs, uh, we don't hear on the corporate media, we don't hear, uh, we don't see on the newsstands in, uh, information about this low-scale, simple living, uh, relocalizing of economies, uh, reacquiring of local food sources. We don't hear about that from the big corporate media because in so many ways, this effort to reimagine uh, the way we lead our lives is profoundly subversive of that, those big corporate media, of the advertisers that, who sponsor them. So we're, we're simply not going to hear from those commercial sources about the real revolution that's going on, not only in this country, but around the world, as people reclaim the sources of their well-being. Well, you talk about uh, these people as arc builders, 
You use the biblical story of the flood and Noah's Ark in a literary and allegorical sense. You encourage yes. and call upon committed conservationist citizens to build arcs eh, very much in that spirit. But when we look at the effects of climate change that are very much in the news today, the floods of Australia come directly to my mind. It almost feels literal. If we, if we are talking about building arcs, then must we necessarily expect that the future holds catastrophe? Well, uh, let me say a couple of things about the way I use the metaphor of the ark, and then I'll try to address the question about the potential for catastrophe. Uh, first of all, I think of the ark, I describe the ark as, as we hear about it from the biblical story. Whatever one believes about the, the historical truth of Noah's flood and so forth, uh, I, I, in my own case, I see it as a story that conveys fundamental values and fundamental insights of an ancient culture, but I don't see it as a historical account. At any rate, if one thinks about what the ark represents in that story. It is a vessel that carries through troubled times, in this case the biblical flood, it carries through troubled times those things that absolutely must be preserved, must be preserved if, if in the future, after the troubles subside, if there's going to be a decent world to live in. So the instructions that God gives to Noah in that story are to place on the ark, there are two different versions, one says one breeding pair of every creature that goes on the earth, and another version, which is ecologically wiser, seven breeding pairs of every species that goes on the earth. And, and then those creatures, once the flood subsides, those creatures are returned and the earth is replenished. Well, if one asks what what does that story teach us? What does that story convey? And what it conveys is, first of all, a profound, the profound value of biodiversity. Now, of course, the ancient people who composed that story wouldn't have had the concept of biodiversity. They wouldn't have understood the word ecology. But intuitively, they understood that all the creatures that surrounded them must be there for some purpose even if there was no human purpose or no obvious human purpose, even if some of those creatures were nuisances, if they bit humans or, or poisoned them, they're, they're, they're being there. They're being part of the creation, must have an intrinsic purpose, and therefore all creatures need to be respected. So I think the story of Noah's Ark is a profound ecological parable. And then I take that story and I think about a... a any ark, any vessel that contains something that is vital to our well-being and that we need in order to go forward and to lead decent lives in the future, no matter how troubled the times may be. And so, I, as I say in my book, that a book can be a vessel. Certainly Walden is a vessel. Aldo Leopold to Sand County Almanac is such a vessel. But so can, can a local food co-op or... Uh, CSA or a farmer's market be, a, be an ark or a land trust holding or simply a backyard where there's some wildlife habitat preserved. So we create uh, these vessels to contain, to protect, uh, to sustain valuable things. We create these in our own individual lives. We create them as parts of groups and parts of communities. 
is it, do we need, are we in fact facing catastrophe? Well, uh, it's easy to use inflamed language and often, in fact, if you use inflamed language, people simply uh, stick their heads in the sand or they run screaming in the opposite direction, not wanting to hear it. We are actually living a catastrophe right now on this planet. At least a billion people, at least a billion people go to bed hungry every night. Uh, at least that many people lack access to clean water and and clean sewer facilities. Uh, so by any measure, humankind is already in a state of catastrophe. Sure, people, most people in America are doing just fine. We're comfortable. We have food on our table. We have drinking, safe drinking water and so forth. And most Americans, not all by any means, have access to education and health care and so forth. But we and Europeans and Japanese are, are more the exception than the rule on the planet. So already humans have outstripped the carrying capacity by our, of our planet by a significant margin. And that's obvious whether one looks at the depletion of ocean fish stocks or the loss of topsoil or the spreading of deserts or the leveling of rainforests. Uh, anywhere one looks, even without, even without looking at what is in fact the greatest challenge, which is climate destabilization, even without looking at that, every, everywhere else one looks, one sees that humans are degrading the natural systems on which all life depends, including, of course, our own. Uh, so I don't know whether one wants to call that a catastrophe. I, I think maybe I would call it a tragedy uh, because here we are born onto and evolved on this plentiful, beautiful, magnificent planet, and we have not been able to constrain our appetites and our aggression enough to sustain this beautiful world. You have said, I propose that we imagine ourselves as conservers, as stewards of the Earth's bounty and beauty. As part of this proposal, you have given us 40 points in the Conservationist Manifesto. Now, obviously, we can't go through all 40 points here, but what are some of the most important and key points that you'd like listeners to this program to come away with? One of the most important ones, I think, is that opponents of conservation, opponents of ecological protection say, well, if you care about nature, you don't care about people. Uh, and unfortunately, some of the critics who say that are, in fact, advocate, advocates for social justice. And that is just flat wrong. That is, it's impossible, finally, to care for the well-being of human beings if we don't care for the health of the earth. So that's one falsehood that I think is profoundly uh, damaging to, con to the efforts of conservation and environmentalism, the falsehood that you, you have to either care about nature or you have to or care about people. You can't care about both. The fact is you can't ever responsibly care about either separately because we're inseparable from nature. And conversely, the well-being of nature is, is inseparable from the just and fair and humane condition of human beings. Uh, that's one of the most important points. Another is that to recognize that we have been trained in our culture 
assiduously trained to see ourselves as consumers. And that is an obscene way to define ourselves. To illustrate that, let me give you just another short quote. This is from a an advertising executive writing in the 1950s in one of the trade magazines where he's talking to his fellow advertising executives about what they need to do in order to make the American economy boom. Here it is. It's, it's very short. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. The economy needs things consumed, burned, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. That is about the most concentrated description of consumerism as I have ever come across, and it's breathtaking if one begins to think about it. Essentially, it says that we must trash the earth for the sake of the economy, and that is utterly perverse. We don't exist, and the earth doesn't exist in order to serve the economy. The economy should exist to serve our well-being and the well-being of earth. So one of the other points in the Conservationist Manifesto that I would like listeners to think about and perhaps embrace is reimagining ourselves not as conservers, not as people who use things up and discard them as quickly as possible at an ever-increasing rate, but rather as caretakers, as stewards, as people who, yes, use things, but do not set out to use things up, who make things last, who repair things, who share things, who do without unnecessary things, and who also try to add richness and beauty to the world and not only to devour it. So there are a number of other points there. Uh, We need to learn from everything that science can teach us about how the natural world works and about our impact on the natural world. Uh, We also need to recognize that many of our environmental and social problems are linked and that they arise primarily from skewed values that uh, at depth, uh, if we have destructive values, if we have wasteful values, then the effects of that will be to cause damage to the earth and suffering to our fellow human beings. How can people internalize and actualize some of these things in their daily lives? Uh, Do you have um, maybe practical mental meditations or exercises people can do or activities that people can engage in? How how would you recommend people approach this? I I think people can start by asking themselves and, and talking with people close to them, family, friends, loved ones, about the following question. What gives my life meaning? What gives me the deepest satisfaction, the deepest sense of wholeness and whole and health and happiness? And ask that question without looking at magazines, without looking at, at televisions or computer screens, or, or even for that matter, looking in books, but really ask oneself, 
where do, do my deepest satisfactions, my deepest sense of purpose and meaning come from? My hunch is that when people ask that question, whether they ask it in, in solitude or whether they ask it in conversation with people who, who are important to them, my hunch is that they will find that relatively little of what gives their life, gives anyone's life, meaning and purpose and, and happiness has anything to do with money, has anything to do with status, with the sorts of things that advertising is constantly selling us. Another thing that I recommend, and this is a pretty obvious thing, is to, is to shield oneself as much as possible from the commercial culture that is sold to us 24 hours a day by commercial television, by billboards, by malls, by the ads in magazines, and by increasingly, alas, the ads on the, on the computer, that one needs to live as much as possible outside of this culture of consumerism that distorts our vision and distorts our culture. We need to take more responsibility for meeting our own needs locally, whether by growing food ourselves or supporting neighbors and farmers who live near us who grow food. Uh, we need to provide more of our own entertainment so that we're less re reliant on these gigantic media enterprises uh, whose only interest is not in entertaining us, but in fact selling our attention to advertisers. We need to become more independent of the sort of commercial world that is sold to us, as I say, 24 hours a day through all the major media. When we actually sit down with people and share food or work to plant a community orchard or organize a local land trust uh, or work at a farmer's market or volunteer for Habitat for Humanity or at the local food kitchen, when we do those things, we feel a much deeper sense of aliveness, a deeper sense of engagement, and also, in many cases, contribute to the well-being of other people. In your book, Hunting for Hope, you share with us uh, something your son Jesse told you. Let me read it now. He said, You make me feel the planet's dying and people are to blame and nothing can be done about it. Maybe you can get by without hope, but I can't. I've still got a lot of living to do. I have to believe there's a way out of this mess. Otherwise, what's the point? Why study? Why work? Why do anything if it's all going to hell? What is your answer to Jesse's question? Well, one answer is that whole book. I set out to write that book, Hunting for Hope, as a response to those very stirring challenges that Jesse made to me when he was 17 years old and, and I was 50. Uh, it was my, that book is my effort to tell Jesse why I, in fact, feel there is hope for humankind. I make a distinction in the book and I, I make a distinction in my mind between hope and optimism. Optimism is the confidence that things are going to turn out right, to turn out just fine. Uh, no matter how bad they are, things are going to turn out fine. Uh, and I'm not optimistic about our, our, our world or about the human capacity 
to meet the challenges that we face. Hope, by contrast, is the conviction that however long the odds, however things may or may not turn out in the future, uh, there is good work to be done right now, right where we are. No matter how limited one's own arena of action might seem, each of us has things that we can do in our own lives uh, in, in, in cooperation with our neighbors or through organizations or maybe through the political process or through teaching or writing. Each of us has things that we can do to move our civilization in the direction we would have it move. We don't have to worry about how small our actions might be in comparison to the scale of the problems. Uh, we can't change the scale of the problems. All we have control over is the actions that are within our reach. And those actions draw not only on our own individual powers, which may be significant in the case of some people, or they may be very modest in the case of most of us. They don't draw only on our own powers. They draw on our cultural tradition. They draw on the resilience of nature. They draw on the strengths of community. And they draw, I believe, as, as well as I argue in that book, they draw also on some grain of the universe. I think the universe is more interested in being than in non-being. Uh, and I base that on the simple uh, fact that there is a world when it would be so easy for there not to be a world. And that in the face of mass extinctions, which have occurred throughout the history of life on Earth, life nonetheless continues and in fact proliferates. Uh, so I see that we, those of us who are trying to work on behalf of, of creation, uh, are in fact aligned with the deeper, the deepest powers of the universe. And those who are committed to aggression, to violence, to destruction, to devouring the planet are in fact working against the deepest powers of the universe. Uh, so it's a, it's a long book, as you know, and the arguments I, I've tried to lay out carefully there in response to Jesse's question. But I'm very grateful to my son for, for challenging me in that way because I didn't realize either how deeply my own my own dismay about the state of the earth, how deeply that had affected Jesse, nor had I really thought deeply enough about why I don't despair. Well, is Jesse satisfied with the answer that you have articulated? He seems to be. He's a father, and uh, he's my closest male friend. Uh, I love him uh, dearly and see him every chance I get, see him and his wife and their two little girls. Uh, and he's involved now in helping to finance uh, green technology companies. Uh, that's what he's doing with his adult life, or at least so far. So he seems to have come out of it uh, very well-adjusted, uh, very responsible, uh, and beautiful human being. Uh, does he does he feel that there are that we humans face enormous challenges? Absolutely. Uh, but he also sees useful work that he can do, and he sees useful work that people are doing all around him all the time. That concludes the first part of my interview with Scott Russell Sanders. I'd like to thank my guest for joining me. This is actually a two-part interview. The Part two will be published next week, so stay tuned for that. We continue to talk about many of the same themes 
And if you enjoy this interview, I'm sure you will enjoy Scott Russell Sanders' books, uh, which you can find on Amazon.com. I'm curious to experiment a little bit with integrating this podcast with some of the things that are going on on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is becoming quite an interesting tool, and there are a lot of people that are now using Twitter to have conversations about agriculture. Um, If anybody is a Twitter user and follows the hashtag AgChat on Twitter, actually they have a conversation every Tuesday evening, I believe, between 6 and 8 p.m., Um, And people from all over the country who are using social media as a way to communicate about issues in agriculture are uh, using Twitter as a way to do that. So I am very curious about uh, this Twitter phenomenon. I am curious about how it has the potential to make things go uh, not necessarily viral, but definitely to facilitate conversations and collaborations between people and to uh, facilitate the transfer of information in real time between uh, very specific communities of people. So if anybody is interested in experimenting with the use of podcasting and uh, the social media tool of Twitter as a way to communicate information about uh, agriculture and information in agriculture and also as a way to maybe unify some of our previously dispersed communities, many of the people in the permaculture community are maybe not necessarily so involved in agriculture, but uh, as Darren Doherty mentioned in the 100th episode of the Agro-Innovation Podcast, uh, he finds it deeply disturbing that the permaculture community is not more engaged with some of the people who are involved in agriculture, uh, professional farmers, and that we need to be. And I wonder if uh, Twitter might not provide a, a useful bridge for at least breaking down some of those barriers and starting to exchange information and share that information amongst these communities, especially as uh, things get more difficult economically, food prices continue to climb, and the need for relocalization becomes more and more urgent. I would encourage people to please get in touch with me if you have some interesting ideas or people that I should interview about using social media for uh, some of the things that I'm talking about here, and I will continue to address that theme in subsequent episodes of the podcast, I'd like for this to be maybe an ongoing initiative, at least uh, to see where it leads me and to see what happens. So if anybody out there, if you are uh, my friend on Facebook, or if you are just a listener of the podcast, or if you follow the Agro Innovations Twitter feed, which is at twitter.com slash agroinnovations, uh, please get in touch with me and let's uh, see if we can get this ball rolling a little bit and, and using some of these tools. So, uh, Again, next week, I will be with uh, Scott Russell Sanders again for part two of our two-part interview, and I will continue to update you about uh, some of my progress on using Twitter to communicate uh, between the agricultural community and the permaculture community. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.